Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, and I'm joined with a very familiar voice that you should know quite well by now, Aishwarya Shridhar. How are you? Hello, Greg. I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. I really appreciate it. So for today's show, we had somebody that reached out to us a little while ago, Scott Sinsenbrenner, and he was talking to us about an interesting partnership that his company has with the Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium around their coral reef restoration project. A lot of really interesting information came out of this interview, these, these two interviews, and um, I'm really excited for us to jump in that today. But before we do, we have a voicemail. Wow! This voicemail is from Katie. Let's take a listen. Hi, Matt and Greg. My name is Katie, and I'm a fan of your show regardless of its name. I wanted to suggest Earth 451 as a name, a possible name, um, as a play on Fahrenheit 451, because you could list the different degrees or facets of how our Earth is burning around us <laughs> and things we can do to change that. Um, I also want to say one of my favorite quotes from that book is, um, do your own bit of saving, and if you drown, at least I know when you were headed for the shore. Um, so I, I like that collective spirit and effort to make a difference, make a change. Um, hope you have a good day. Katie, thank you so much for your voicemail. Earth 451, definitely around the kind of energy that we're, we're talking about. What did you think about that, Ash? Uh, it's a good name, Earth 451, although I've never read the book Fahrenheit 451. Uh, I have to go and maybe probably read that. But yeah, it sounds a nice name. You know, one can cover all the aspects related to our planet, our environment. Yeah, and a very ominous quote at the end there. You drown, at least I knowing you were headed for the shore. Uh, there's there's something for that, for, for sure. Exactly. Katie, thank you so much for sending that in. We're in the process of kind of finalizing that list of names right now. And um, we really, 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 really appreciate your input. If you would like to leave a voicemail for Eyes on Conservation, soon to be the formerly Eyes on Conservation podcast, you can do so uh, by calling 208-917-3786, or you can write an email or send a voice note to info at wildlandsinc.org. Thanks again, Katie. So you began this story by sitting down and talking to Scott, and he shared a little bit with you about why coral reefs were such an important topic. Yes, he spoke a lot about how our uh, reefs today are affected uh, by a lot of things and why is it necessary that we should go out there and raise our voices and protect our coral reefs today. And, and kind of the bummer of it is that the type of work that Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium is doing is so incredibly important and yet it is just infamously underfunded research. Um, so that's what makes partnerships like this kind of a lifeline for different research programs. It's kind of just the nature of the beast, really. Yes, absolutely. I mean, today, uh, conservation program and research funding is extremely limited. Let's just jump right into it. Let's hear what Scott had to say. We searched the world over for what nature provides. And, um, and, and what we look at is is the efficacy and the quality that mother earth you know grows for us and she has been you know so beneficial to humans and to the products that enzymatica makes but one of the things that um i think might be important to your audience is 
why are the reefs important to us? And that's something that, you know, I think all of us really need to take a step back because as we're reading about things like coronavirus and, and all of the challenges with it, um, what, what we don't realize is, is that there has been a, a, a even more aggressive epidemic happening under the sea. And what do I mean by that? It's, you know, when, when you, when you look at, uh, at the at the coral reefs and what they provide us, it's actually quite shocking because you know coral reefs. You and I were 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 breathing. We're we're breathing oxygen, and you know most people think oxygen comes from rainforest, and it does. But the biggest contributor to the oxygen you are breathing is actually coming from coral reefs. In fact over 50% of the planet's oxygen is produced from coral reefs, and yet they only occupy 1% of the ocean floor. And that's something that when you look back over the last uh, 30 years or so, you have seen a die-off that is second to none. And, uh, and, and that die-off is advancing more and more every day as the various environmental conditions, um, you know, uh, really impact um, the survival rate of of ancient reefs that have existed for centuries. And and to put this in into perspective, in 2017 alone, 12 percent. Think about this: 12 percent of the world's reefs became bleached. And it just just in that period alone. And all of the models predict that that die-off, uh, that die-off alone, will disappear forever for 4,600 square miles. That's huge. It is. It is absolutely huge. And when you go back the last 30 years, um, there has been a substantial portion of the ocean reefs that have already died off. And so, when you project that out um, by 2050. Um, NOAA and other leading scientists are projecting that the majority of the ocean reefs will no longer exist. And putting that in again to perspective, you and I were breathing air. I think that's the real news story here that everyone needs to be talking about is what does that mean to all of us? But not just us, it's really about the legacy that our generation is leaving behind for the next generation because they have to breathe to survive. And that's why Enzymetica, part of our people and planet, really took on this partnership and mission with Moat Marine is to help them, number one, raise, raise the awareness of this challenge, and two, to actually do something about it. Absolutely, Scott. A marine ecosystem is definitely downplayed. I mean, uh, it hardly gets the same importance as the Amazons or the rainforests, for that matter. Correct. In fact, when when you look at at coral, um, it's actually a living animal, and if you look at the extinction charts, uh, it is number one in in the rate of extinction. You know, when you look at the cause of this, you know, which is, 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 is really where everyone needs to point to first, you know, it's coming from, you know, concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, 
um, you know, due to emissions of, of a fossil fuels, that's all, all, all human, you know, driven, right? Um, you know, and, and you also look at the changing, you know, pH rates of, of the, the water uh, as a temperature rises and, um, and you get glacier, you know, runoff, all of that combined, you know, really makes it a tough environment. If, if you are a reef yourself, you, you're the animal, right? And you've got to be able to live, um, you know, and, and, you know, especially within the U.S., but around the world, um, we all love our, our manicured lawns and our golf courses and all of those things. And what's happening is, is that development and use of various chemicals, um, you know, are, are really driving nutrient runoff, you know, uh, from farms and lawns, et cetera. And all that combined is all human driven. And we're all doing it in little ways each and every day. But at the end of the day, it's the aggregate um, that, is calling, that is really causing this systemic die off throughout the world. That's one of many, many factors that all needs to be looked at. And that's something that Moat Marine really integrates into their science. They're ready to rock. And they, they want to build an army of, of scientists and team members to, uh, to really tackle this problem. I was reading up a little bit more about uh, the research work that uh, Moat is doing. And I came across uh, this, that they were heavily into ocean acidification and also into uh, researching the future of ocean temperatures. Uh, have you looked at that research and... Um, I mean, is there a silver lining? Is there any hope in the future that we will save our oceans? Uh, that is is absolutely a question for the scientists at Moat Marine to answer. Um, you know, but I can tell you that uh, what I've seen is more concern rather than you know feeling comforted that uh, that the that the world itself is gonna is gonna be able to resolve this. Thank you so much, Scott. It was a real pleasure talking to you. So in order to get a full picture of the science behind coral reef restoration and to understand its process more scientifically, I spoke to Dr. Erin Muller, who is the science director of Moat's Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration, and she's also the manager of Moat's Coral Health and Disease Research and Coral Reef Restoration Programs. So Dr. Muller, I would really love to know what inspired Moat to start Coral Reef Restoration. We started Coral Reef Restoration over a decade ago as a response to what we were seeing out on Florida's coral reef. So uh, through our scientific exploration and monitoring and documentation, you know, we, among lots of other scientists in the area, documented significant decline in Florida's coral cover. And so, you know, kind of to paint a picture of what the reef used to look like in the 70s, you know, you'd go to a reef in, in Florida, one of the beautiful iconic reefs, and about half of the substrate, the bottom, would actually be covered by living coral. And so, you know, what we saw over the last several decades was a significant decline in this coral cover so that we were seeing only about 5% of that reef, of that 
reef being actually covered by living corals several decades ago. And so, you know, we recognize the need that in order for these corals to continue functioning properly, we were going to have to, um, you know, intercede and conduct restoration to try to bring the populations back ourselves or, or help them along as best as possible. That's fantastic. I mean, looking back, uh, were you all confident that this project would be a success given the whole nature of its study? There is a lot of details uh, associated with coral restoration that really had to be kind of picked apart and studied in order to know how to do the practices successfully. And so for the last decade, we've really been focusing on different methodologies to increase our success and ultimately get these corals that specifically the slow growing ones like the boulder and brain corals to be able to reproduce, you know, within a short amount of time. And, and in theory, you know, we were very confident that our methodology should be supporting the idea that we would, you know, cut that reproductive time significantly. But corals are tricky organisms. They're very complex. They're heavily influenced by their environment, which is constantly changing. And so there were a lot of additional variables that were thrown into the idea. And but luckily, you know, or or strategically, I guess, you know, our our methods are holding true, and it, it goes to show that these corals spawning five years after after outplanting is really cutting the time required to reach that reproductive maturity. And, and it just goes to show that our theory and our methods are, are holding sound. I was reading up a little bit about uh, your coral reef restoration process, the microfragmentation process to be more specific. Uh, how did that come about? Like, was there any eureka moment? Yes, in in many ways, there was a eureka, eureka moment. So we um we had our director at the time really focusing on coral restoration, Dr. David Vaughn. And although the process of fragmentation um, has been used heavily in coral husbandry and in the aquaculture field um, for corals for a long time, it had never been really applied to restoration. And he kind of came across that idea on accident by just uh, looking at some corals that we had grown on land and accidentally breaking one into a very small piece. And he thought those small pieces were actually going to just die. But what he observed instead was they started growing very quickly, much more quickly than the larger corals that we had on the facility. And so he had that eureka moment that was like, wow, we could probably use this method to increase the amount of coral we are growing within our land-based nursery and directly apply that to restoration, specifically for these slow-growing boulder and brain corals that only grow maybe a, a couple millimeters in diameter a year if kind of left to their own devices, whereas the microfragmentation process dramatically accelerates that growth um, and so that we can actually get more tissue faster. And having more tissue leads to corals being more reproductive at an earlier age. And so it all just kind of aligns up through that one kind of eureka moment. So how long does it take for a coral reef to form? And how long does it take to die? Like, what's the life cycle like of a coral? Well, if you're talking about the coral reef itself, which is the physical structure that reefs live on, it takes thousands of years to actually grow. Um, you know, you can tens of thousands or longer. You can actually core down into a reef and and look at um, thousands of years of information from that accumulation of structure over time. When you're talking about a single coral, 
Um, and when that coral reaches reproductive maturity, it totally varies by species. Sometimes it only takes a few years, but with the corals that create the foundation, they're like the backbone of that reef structure, are those slow-growing boulder and brain corals. And, and typically, if you had a little baby of these species and you settled them, it would take decades to get them to be reproductively viable. Um, and so our process through microfragmentation, you can actually create just 20 individual one centimeter square microfragments and grow them out to be about three centimeters in diameter on land. And then when you outplant them, it takes just a few years for them to grow and fuse and be reproductively viable. So we've we've cut that timing down significantly and and using very little initial coral tissue to do that. So it's going to allow us to really increase the coral cover on the reef, which is super important, and um, and make sure that the corals we put out there are going to be producing new babies within just a few years. So your nurseries are mainly on land or these coral nurseries are underwater as well? We have both types of coral nurseries at Moat. So our land-based nursery focuses on the microfragmentation and fusion process um, because that microfragmentation process has to happen on land and boulder corals need a lot of attention to grow out so they need really great environments. But we also have in-water nurseries and our in-water nurseries historically have focused on a lot of the branching corals. But now we're integrating these two methodologies and creating a hybrid model. So that's uh, both or all types of species that we grow. We actually grow in the water and on land because each one have different advantages. And we kind of um, can grow things on land, transition them into our in-water nursery and then outplant them so that we can increase production and we won't be space limited. Does space limit uh, coral reproduction or do you feel that if we have a larger nursery, then their rate of reproduction would be faster? Like, is there any connection with that? Well, I think the connection is that there's tons of space out in the sea. And of course, the space limiting process is what you have on land. So taking that hybridization approach allows you to do some of the critical steps on land that you need to. And then you can grow a lot more corals by moving them into the offshore nurseries where space is primarily limitless. And then when you increase those numbers, you increase the the ability to grow a lot of these fragments out and you can outplant more of them. That just means that you're going to, we're going to be able to outplant corals um, that are going to fuse and become reproductively viable more frequent than if we only utilize the land-based nursery or the in-water nursery. So it accelerates production and that's going to lead to more reproductively viable corals. You know, as of now, climate change poses a huge threat for our coral reefs today. But apart from climate change, uh, what are the other threats that our coral reefs face today? Yeah, so, I mean, climate change, ocean acidification, and disease outbreaks are the three major threats affecting reefs today, and especially the reefs of the Florida Reef Tract. And, and they are, you know, related to, you know, increasing water temperatures, and also water quality can play a role, especially when you're talking about disease dynamics. Um, but what the great thing is with moat and where a lot of my research um, integrates into the coral restoration process is studying the resilience of the corals that we put out onto the reef. And so each coral is very unique. Um, you know, some of them may be more 
resistant to high nutrients. Some of them may be more resistant to high water temperatures. Some may be disease resistant. And what the, our research does is it kind of figures out what makes each coral special and which ones are the ones that have this broad spectrum level of resilience. So one thing we find is that there are certain corals that are just super robust. They maybe, maybe are um, temperature tolerant and also disease resistant. But we also know that there are some that are high temperature tolerant, but are not disease resistant and the disease resistance are not temperature tolerant. So we can characterize the corals that we're putting out there. And then we use that information really strategically. So we can outplant certain corals that are going to, uh, like, for example, be temperature tolerant to more shallow areas because they're going to be the ones experiencing a lot of the temperature fluctuations first. So we can put the uh, high temperature tolerant ones there and, and kind of use that to guide our out planning process. But what's probably more exciting is that we can also use those corals to be the parents for the next generation. What we're always striving to do is increase genetic diversity of our outplanted population. Having high genetic diversity just makes these populations more robust. But we can also integrate some of our knowledge um, to have a, a certain percentage of the parents be those robust, resilient corals so that their traits are being transferred to their offspring. And so that population, although highly gen genetically diverse, also has a more high probability of surviving as disease outbreaks continue to kind of ravage the reef tract, temperatures continue to warm and, and pH continues to drop. I mean, it's great to put a lot of corals out onto the reef, but if they're not going to survive these changes in the environment that unfortunately aren't going away in the next several decades are things that we are just going to have to deal with. Um, if they don't survive those changes, then, then, you know, there's, it's not very successful. And so making sure that that process is integrated thoughtfully into the outplant plan is a big priority for us. Our strategy is to make sure that the corals we put out there today, not only survive the next year, but survive decades, potentially centuries to come because corals have an un indefinite lifespan. Like some species, we don't even know how long they actually live. It could be thousands of years. And so, you know, what we do today can have huge ramifications for the future. And so we need to be planning for that. I'm so glad that you had a chance to talk to Dr. Muller about the research that they're doing at Moat. Because when I start thinking about coral reefs, I get extremely anxious and I get really sort of freaked out about where this planet is heading. And the fact that they're able to do in a few short years what takes decades or hundreds or sometimes even thousands of years in the wild when it comes to not just the reproduction of coral reef, but also getting into disease resistant and heat resistant and pH resistant coral that is going to do really well in the future and can do that in such a short amount of time, I, I get really excited. Did you, did you get a sense that this is the type of answer that we might be looking for? Yes, Greg, absolutely. I mean, with climate change and global ocean temperatures rising, this is exactly what we need. It's the need of the hour. Uh, such research and implementation is very critical, not only for coral reefs, but for our own survival, 
because coral reefs today are a very important uh, pillar for our marine ecosystem to thrive they support a lot of marine life so if this effort can be replicated across the world in all the degraded marine ecosystems then that would be fantastic yeah absolutely absolutely well let's let's not waste any time let's hear more about what she has to say about it how important is it that the people of today care for corals like what's at stake if the coral reefs tomorrow die out i think coral reefs are so incredibly important in many different ways and uh hopefully as we continue to convey that information more and more people realize it but about 25% of all marine life rely on coral reefs and they are the hot spot of biodiversity within our oceans so just ecologically there's just huge ramifications for making sure that coral reefs remain healthy but there's so many different ecosystem services which are like services that reefs provide to people that um maybe you don't realize so um they're a great novel source of medicine for fighting things like cancer or Alzheimer's or drug-resistant bacteria. They protect our shorelines, so they absorb a ton of wave energy as hurricanes or storms roll through. All those waves break on coral reefs, and so the shoreline and all the property associated with that shoreline is protected. Coral reefs are a huge economic driver. So, for example, Florida's coral reef is worth at least $8 billion to the state economy. That's billion with a B. Um, it provides over 70... Oh my god, that's huge. Yes. And that's honestly that's probably conservative estimate, you know. I mean, I it's worth uh so much because it provides the foundation of our fisheries. People come to Florida, you know, they want to fish for grouper, they want to fish for lobster and all of those species, you know, rely on coral reefs and the structure and, and diversity that they provide. Um people want to come and go scuba diving. So there's 16 million visitors to our state every year and many of them want to experience what a coral reef is like and so making sure that that reef is healthy, you know, is critical to our state economy and it supports over 70,000 local jobs. So economically it's incredibly important, you know, our heritage of Florida relies on that reef being there too. There's so much of our culture that's tied to that. And then just biologically, I mean, it's they are they are amazing ecosystems. It's the most beautiful places I've ever experienced and and hopefully many people get a chance to do so either you know real in real life or virtually because you know it would just be heartbreaking to lose coral reefs you know around the world and and right now we're we're in the middle of that battle I mean especially in Florida we're on the brink of a functional extinction and so this is we're in the fight of our lives to try to save these ecosystems especially here in Florida yeah if ecosystems like the coral reefs disappear tomorrow then life would be really affected in a very bad way yeah and i mean at least a billion people on earth depend on coral reefs in some form or function that's like a seventh of the entire population you know whether it's just a primary source of protein or jobs or tourism i mean it's they are incredibly valuable and so losing them would greatly disrupt you know the overall health and well-being of the entire population of the earth Yeah so all these coral reefs not only have a biological value but they also have an economic and a social and a cultural value as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I also read that Mort is doing research on future ocean temperatures and acidification. What are the most concerning parts of that research and is there a silver lining? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely concerning parts come out of research when you're thinking about climate change and ocean acidification. But we definitely see some, you know, significant glimmers of hope in the sense that, you know, some of our research is really finding those genotypes that are robust, that seem to be resistant to multiple stressors simultaneously. Um, even if we don't find that in a species, we uh, we can use that information to figure out which ones are more robust to different stressors and, and use that information to, you know, cross a, a temperature tolerant mom with a with an ocean acidification resistant dad and create lots of babies, you know, that we can integrate into the population thoughtfully. There's a, a great amount of research that's going into this work. And I think, um, you know, we're picking away at uh, utilizing that information into doing best, rest, best restoration practices. Is there any other research happening similar to what uh, MOAT does anywhere else in the world? Yeah, I mean, there are other institutions that are doing really great things. For example, Australian Institute of Marine Science has really, since the loss of, of 50% of the Great Barrier Reef over the last few years from coral bleaching has really um, taken the reins on conducting coral restoration practices in Australia. And they are integrating research on heat tolerance into their restoration practices similar to us. And there's lots of other institutions that are really focused on coral restoration practices and propagation and outplanning. But I would say what's unique about MOAT is because we're a really novel institution where we have coral practitioners and scientists and um, policy makers all kind of working together that we we get to look at coral restoration, best coral restoration practices, propagation, out planning, reproduction science associated with corals, resilience work associated with those corals. And all that information feeds together through like a pod of people that just, you know, work together on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it's, it's unique in the sense that we're looking at not just heat tolerance, but also ocean acidification and disease, because those are huge issues happening simultaneously, especially in Florida. Um, and we're integrating that into our restoration practices literally every day. Like we're doing new research, we're having meetings, we're updating our outplanning practices based on novel science. And it's just this living, breathing process that, you know, as we get more information, we get better and better every day. And, and I think that's what makes us unique. But the great thing about all these other organizations doing great work, too, is that we get to collaborate with other awesome scientists and practitioners and we learn from each other. Um, and there's lots of different working groups and consortiums where, you know, we're meeting together and sharing information in real time. And so we're not working in a bubble. We're certainly like excited with working with a lot of collaborators, especially in Florida. And, and that just helps keep us all motivated and helps the progress of coral restoration move forward as fast as possible. We wouldn't be where we are today without relationships like the ones one we have with Enzymedica. I mean, most of our initial work um, on coral restoration didn't come from federal money, didn't come from the state. It came from relationships with philanthropy, foundations, and corporate partnerships. And that type of support, I mean, is so critical critical. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing today without having that as a foundation. Uh, do you only plan to uh, do the reef restoration in Florida or you plan to expand it as well outside of Florida? 
Yeah, we would definitely love to expand our efforts outside of Florida. We have a lot of partnerships and collaborations with groups that are interested. What we do to kind of implement that is knowledge share. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of great local efforts that are happening all around the world and uh, what they what they need primarily is not, you know, necessarily moat to come in and establish a new nursery but to be the ones to give share the knowledge that we've learned with them so that they can apply it to their local reefs because you know everything is going to be a little bit different depending on where you are and what the regulations are and what the reefs are like and what capacity you have and so we are very much looking forward to continuing to share our knowledge we we share it already through workshops and webinars and and publications but we're we're looking to develop a lot of virtual workshop opportunities especially nowadays um, with our limited ability to travel we're establishing a virtual workshop model that is going to allow us to have farther reach and uh, share that kind of knowledge with people that, you know, probably couldn't make it to Florida, whether it's today or a year or two from now, because it's so expensive, you know, to be able to share that knowledge virtually is really important. And then we do anticipate being able to hold hands-on workshops in the future so that those that want that extra level of experience can come to our lab and, and experience some of that and eventually be able to go to sites and work with them, you know, to teach uh, to teach what we know hands-on at those different locations. So that's definitely one of our long-term goals to be able to implement that we're, we're starting to um, develop ideas on how to do that effectively now. Is there any other international research that is happening which really excites you? In the context of coral restoration and my work particularly, there's a, there's several different aspects of, of research that I think are, are super exciting. Like one is um, is the resilience work and really understanding um, biomarkers. So like like characteristics of a coral that you could um, screen for that can give you an idea of like, oh, this biomarker indicates that it's disease resistant or this this biomarker indicates it's heat tolerant. There's a lot of international work that is focused on trying to find these biomarkers. And I think that step is super critical for restoration because these uh, exposure studies that we do right now are incredibly time intensive and, and difficult to, to screen, you know, hundreds to thousands of genotypes. So having this type of biomarker that we can screen for without having to do all of the exposure experiments, I think is going to be incredibly critical for progressing coral restoration under the resilience umbrella really efficiently. Um, and then all new ideas too about integrating assisted gene flow into some of these populations. So there's several species in Florida that that are basically functionally extinct. There's only a few of them left and, and some of them only exist in a lab environment. And so what we're trying to international collaborators are trying to do is, is figure out, could we move corals from other jurisdictions and cross them with some of the corals that we have locally to create new babies that are basically genetically diverse and, and integrate genes from other areas to bring these populations back? And the great part is, is that we're in those conversations right now with managers that are providing guidance on this is, these are the steps you guys need to do in order to get the research so that we can see the data and know that these options are being conducted safely. And so that's really an exciting part of what we have been doing and being a part of at Mo as well. 
It must be really exciting to be a scientist. It really is. It really is. I mean, and there's all these cool, innovative approaches that are happening now too, like um, researchers at the Smithsonian, uh, Mary Hagedorn has created cryopreservation technology, you know, that we can cryopreserve sperm. And so then you can like save sperm and that could be really important in assisted gene flow um, so that you can cross corals from different regions and and study them in a lab, you know, before you put them out, of course. And um, or, you know, if you have problems with asynchronous spawning, so some corals spawn maybe in September and others spawn in, in July, and you, you wouldn't be able to cross them and create new babies unless you had cryopreservation to freeze some of the sperm. And so there's all these cool novel technologies that are being integrated into the, into the science too. And it's really exciting because a lot of this work has direct applications. You know, they're not just like science that's happening for the sake of science in some ivory tower. They're, it's science that's happening that you can implement, you know, on the reef, hopefully within the next several years. Yes, I hope so too. So on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. I think one of the major goals of this podcast is to not just talk about, you know, the cushier, more comfy sides about how we're beating climate change or how we're, we're fighting against mass extinction, um, but to really be honest and quite frank and authentic about the fact that we've really outdone ourselves as humans. And there's some really irreparable damage that's been done to our planet um, you know, when we look at species or animals um, that you're looking at it, and this is going to be one of the last times that humans lay eye on, eyes on this this thing. That being said, I don't want to sugarcoat this, but like, do you do you get a sense of hope that we're heading in the right direction when you talk to Dr. Mueller, or or yes, and and or both? Do you, this this feeling like? Holy crap, like, what have we done? What have we done? Yeah, what have we done, Greg? What have humans done on this planet? Uh, while talking to uh, Dr. Muller, I did get a sense of hope. But at the same time, I also uh, had this feeling, uh, this ominous feeling that what happens if we are not able to achieve what we set out to do, like what we had planned? If not, then what? Yeah, that's the thing is like we're talking about something that could have been done perfectly fine in the wild on its own, but we've intervened so much in the atmosphere and the health of our planet that it is so necessary to have people uh, in organizations like Moat. So I, I don't know. I hope our listeners come away with this saying like, great, there's this research being done. It's incredibly underfunded, as we've seen, as we've talked about here. Yes. They're doing great work. They're heading in the right direction, but... Ultimately, it did not need to be this way, and we've chosen the hard way. You know, Greg, we have driven Mother Nature to the brink today. Nature doesn't need us. We need nature. Today, we don't have too many options left with us, but to engage in methods of mass rejuvenation and restoration. Now, this is definitely not a struggle to restore nature. It's a struggle for our own survival. Sadly, but honestly put, Aishwarya Sridhar, thank you so much for your time and effort for this episode of the soon-to-be-renamed Eyes on Conservation podcast.
Thank you so much for listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. The complete interview with Dr. Muller is available exclusively for our Patreon community on Patreon. And if you are not a member yet, you can support the work that we are doing for less than a dollar a creation. And we do like two to three creations in a month. So it would really help us to continue to bring important stories to you. And by contributing, you become an immediate part of our family. And the best way to do that is to head over to patreon.com slash collective. And that allows you to directly support the work we are doing. And we cannot do this without you. A very big thank you to Mr. Scott of Enzymedica and Dr. Erin Muller of Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium for joining us today. And if you are interested in finding out more about coral reef restoration and the incredible work that they do, then you can head over to their website, which is www.moat.org and you spell moat with M-O-T-E. Or you can connect with them through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Their handle is Moat Marine Lab. For a full list of this episode's links and contributors, including music used in the show, please visit the show notes page on www.violenceinc.org slash EOC207. This is Aishwarya Sridhar reminding you once again that we have only one planet, our precious Earth. Stay safe, guys. <laughs>